0: Hey there, and welcome to our five-part Wednesday night series called Censored, where we as a church are going to take a look at controversial topics that are going to get us, well, censored. Last week, we heard from Pastor Brian as we took a look at racism. This week, we're going to be hearing from Pastor Brian again as we take a look at wokeism. There's going to be a Q&A, so look for part two. If you have any questions at home that don't get answered in our Q&A, we ask you to find us at journeycommunity.church and ask your questions there. Now with all that said and done, let's go into this week's episode with Pastor Brian.
1: Good good evening, everyone. I almost said afternoon as well. Um, So today we're going to continue through our series, uh, Censored. Today we're looking at woke ideology or wokeism. And so this one uh, we save for the end because what it's going to do, it's going to encompass all the other talks. Um, so, you know, we looked at feminism and abortion. We've looked at LGBTQ and sexuality. We've looked at the government and vaccines. We've looked at racism. And each time we've talked a little bit about the philosophies that kind of uh, guide our current culture. Uh, but this one's going to be a much deeper dive into the ideologies that guide our culture. And so what I want to do with you guys is I want to cover what those things are. And I want to then go to scripture and show why those... Teachings, why the things that our world teaches and the way our the people of this world understand things to be does not correspond correspond to scripture. So we as Christians cannot adopt the way the world thinks. We are told to renew our minds, we're to be thinking like Christians, and so we cannot adopt woke ideologies and be in Christ. Not be good little Marxists. Exactly. Um, So you might be asking some of you, what does woke mean? And that is a difficult term to define because there isn't one woke ideology. There's kind of a bunch of different ideologies kind of pushed into one. And so one of the defense mechanisms of people that are woke is they'll say, well, I don't believe that specific component of woke ideology. And so it becomes a very hard thing to kind of nail down. And so what I'm going to do is go over a bunch of different ideologies that have kind of come together to define the woke ideology. Uh, But a, a basic definition we can use for woke is someone who has been awakened or made aware of an issue that they were not once able to see. And in particular in our world, that issue is social justice. And so if you're not woke, you're not aware of social justice issues. If you are woke, you're aware of social justice issues. And part of being woke is being an activist for social justice. So it's not just enough to know about it. You're woke when you know about it and you do something about it. And so then you might be asking, well, what is social justice? Whenever someone appends something before justice, you should be a little bit concerned. So you might hear climate justice, social justice, gender justice, and so there's a bunch of different things where justice is in the name. Essentially what they're doing is they're redefining what justice is. So the the soft definition you might get from someone is, well, social justice is just addressing issues of justice in society. But if, if that's true, why don't we just use the word justice? So the real definition of justice is that they want to end power dynamics in society. And so this is where we get, where you might hear someone call them Marxists, because this idea does come from Marx. This idea that there's power struggles within our society that need to be undone for some reason or another. And so social justice is meant to address power structures in our society. And so it comes from the understanding that uh, differences or disparities between people is inequity. And then inequity is injustice. So for you and I as Christians, we can agree that inequity is injustice. Justice requires equity under the law. But where we would disagree is that differences is inequity. So just because there are differences between people doesn't mean we are unequal, or that we are not that we do not have equity. And so what social justice does is it sees disparities, and wherever those disparities exist, that must be pointing to some sort of injustice somewhere. They don't necessarily know where it is, and so they just generally will define it as the structures. So the structures of society are racist, or they're sexist, or whatever other where they might depend there, um, because they see the disparity on the other side. And so someone who is woke is awakened to these social justice issues, they become an activist for these social justice issues, and they want to essentially end the structures that would bring about those disparities because those that is how you bring about social justice. You must end the structures of the society to end injustice. And so what we need to do is we need to turn to the scriptures and we need to understand justice biblically. And this is true for a lot of terms. What you'll find is that there's basically a war over the definitions of words today. Um, And you can go through and you can see within the past several years that the definition of a lot of different terms has changed. And so the reason of that changing is to make it fit in with the social justice narrative. And so you can see that racism doesn't mean what racism used to mean. You can see justice doesn't mean what justice used to mean. Gender doesn't mean what gender used to mean. And this is an intentional change of definition. And so for the Christian, when we want to define words, we need to base it in scripture. And this is because, especially with words like justice, if we actually want to implement justice from God, we need to know what God means by justice, not what we mean by justice. And so I want you guys to turn to Amos chapter 5, verse 24. Amos chapter 5, verse 24 says this But let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like an ever flowing stream. So one thing we need to recognize here is that God commands justice. God wants us to be just people. He wants us to enact justice in the world. And when we have justice rolling down, it's like waters and there's righteousness that's flowing from it. And so what people, uh, what we know about people is that God has put this desire for justice in us. We have a strong desire for justice. And this is why it's such a powerful tool. This is why it's a powerful word to redefine. Because everyone wants justice. And so if you can define something as an injustice, You can get people to act against it and so we need to understand justice again like scripture because what you'll see is that some christians will take passages like this they'll put in the new definition of justice and then say christians must follow the new definition of justice but we need to understand that what justice is is that we each get our due under the law scripture tells us that god came and that we get that when he judges in the end that there will be equity under the law and that means that if i sin i pay for that sin So equity under the law is that we are getting our just due or our just penalty under the law. And so, again, what the uh, social Marxists are doing is they're now defining any disparities, any differences, as that inequity. And that is not true. Equity is a due penalty under the law. And so Christians do want to have equity, but we need to, again, define justice and equity the way the Bible tells us to define it. Um, so what we need to do as we go through this is we're going to go through the history of philosophy. There are two uh, references I'm going to be using for tonight. Um, and if you are taking notes and you uh, miss this, you can ask me for the names afterwards. One source I'm using is a history of Western philosophy and theology written by John Frame. Um, and the other one is going to be a site called New Discourses by James Lindsay. Um, and so John Frame is a philosopher and uh, has been working in universities and creating textbooks for universities for quite some time. Um, And so I'm going to use him to, again, go through this history of philosophy. And then uh, James Lindsay is a mathematician and an author who has uh, kind of been fighting the woke ideology. So his website is geared towards defining all the terms so that way we can know what it is meant when people say different things. So Those are the two sources I'm going to be using. Um, And so uh, we're not going to go over the entire history of philosophy. We'd be here for several days if we did that. Uh, really weeks if we did it in depth. Um, So I'm going to just go over some of the key people that are involved in the modern thinking. You took those courses, yeah. They're fun courses. Uh, So first we're going to look at um, George Hegel. Hegel was a philosopher in the late 1700s, early 1800s. Um, And so Hegel is an idealist. And so basically what an idealist is, is it's someone that thinks that the mind corresponds to reality. Or in other words, reality comes from the mind. And so to him there was a strong correspondence between Uh, what we could perceive in the world and our mind Um, but he was also a rationalist and so because he was an idealist and a rationalist, he believed that our mind was capable of of understanding everything in the known universe. We could comprehend all things, it just takes some time and by our rational minds we could come to understand all things that are in existence. But there was a problem in rationalism at the time Hegel came about, there was contradictions in the philosophy and so people didn't know how to resolve these contradictions. And so Hegel came along and he suggested his dialectic, and he said that using his dialectic we'll be able to answer all the questions. So his dialectic was thesis, antithesis, synthesis. And so what Hegel said is if we go through this thesis, antithesis, synthesis over and over again, that we'll actually be able to understand all things in philosophy. And so to give you guys an idea of what this means, um, if we take an example of an elephant and blind men, and you go tell the blind man to touch the elephant and then tell you what the elephant looked like. Well, you might have one guy touch the trunk of the elephant and he'll tell you an elephant's like a snake. And you might have another guy touch the leg of the elephant and he'll tell you that the elephant's like a tree trunk. And so these two terms, these two definitions of the elephant are contradictory. And so Hegel said, uh, just like that, we see contradictions in philosophy. And so all you have to do is zoom out on the elephant and realize that those two statements weren't contradictory, they're just telling you a part of the whole. And so what Hegel's trying to do in philosophy is he wants us to Zoom out and realize that contradictions that we see in philosophy are really just parts of the whole. We can actually understand all things. We just have to zoom out and get the broader context of what is there. And so quoting from John Frame, he says, Like other human activities, knowledge proceeds by trial and error, by questioning what we think we know in order to reach a higher level of insight. Interpreters commonly identify three stages of Hegel's dialectical reasoning. Thesis, antithesis, synthesis. The thesis is a proposition for up for discussion. The antithesis is an assertion that seems to arise from the thesis, but is in fact contrary to it. The synthesis is the view that dismisses the errors of, these, of the thesis and antithesis, but presents a larger picture that affirms what is true in these earlier steps. And so again, by stepping away from the elephant, you saw that the thesis of it being like a snake and the antithesis of it being like a trunk weren't really contradictory, they're just parts of the whole, so you zoom out and you get your new synthesis to realize the bigger picture of it. And so Hegel believed that um, all of thought could be understood this way. Whenever you see a contradiction, there's not really a contradiction, you just zoom out farther, and you'll find the truth behind it. Um, But since again, uh, in Hegel's mind, our mind comes before reality, he believed that all of reality worked this way, not just our minds, but everything you saw in the world, all of history worked this way. And so Hegel also applied his dialectic to history, And so he said, for example, tribes fight and then nations are born, and then nations fight and then greater civilizations are born. So everything is going through his dialectic. All thought, all history is going through it. And so Hegel wanted to explain how opposite things are actually dependent on one another. Again from John Frame, it says, for example, according to Hegel, slavery and democracy seemed to be opposed, but it was slavery that gave leisure to the Greek upper class to think about and implement democracy, but eventually the contradiction destroyed the slave leisure society and created a higher kind of civilization, feudalism. But that too embodied social tensions, in this case between nobles and serfs. And so he saw this change in worker relations as something that was going through his dialectic. It was going through thesis, antithesis, and synthesis. Um. So Hegel uh, kind of stopped there, and what's funny about Hegel is that he said, everything goes through this dialectic except for my philosophy. He believed his philosophy was the final step for philosophy. No one else had to do any more philosophy after him because he was the greatest mind that came about and no one could improve on his thoughts. Um, what's interesting about Hegel is that he actually went to seminary in Germany and so he had concept of God, he had concept of spirit, um, but he was he would not be considered an orthodox Christian because he also thought God went through his dialectic as well. And again, because everything in the mind that we can perceive, including God, has to go through his dialectic. And so he was a very heretical Christian, but... Uh, He did believe in God and had some concept of spirit. So Hegel never intended for his ideas to be used for evil means. He thought he was doing the world good, and he thought he was trying to help explain how things worked. Uh, But one of his followers, by the name of Karl Marx, took his dialectic to the next step. So Karl Marx was uh, in the 1800s, and so he took um, Hegel's dialectic, and he applied it to the material world. So what's interesting about Marx is um, Marx, unlike Hegel did not believe in spirit. He did not believe in God. Marx was purely a materialist. And so what he tried to do was combine Hegel's teachings uh, with Darwin's teachings to understand the world. And so he also agreed that history went through the dialectic um, cycle. But he believed that, uh, unlike Hegel, that it was switched, that reality influenced the mind. So our mind had nothing to do with reality. We just perceived reality through the mind and that we are determined by the dialectic. So we don't actually have control over ourselves, we are just determined by natural processes to follow along the dialectic no matter what. And so in Marx's understanding, the main driving force of this was economy. And so everyone is just acting because of their natural being, they can't help it, they just act and they do things along the dialectic. And so from John Frame, he says, the attempts of people to achieve material well-being are what motivate and the events of history. In his analysis of the production of goods, Marx distinguished between factors of production, food, clothing, shelter, work skills, and relations of production, master-slave, owner-worker, etc. It was the relations of production Marx thought would be the more important understanding of historical change. And so Marx, when he read history, he said that what's really driving the change in history is the relationship between workers. And so again, he saw, just like Hegel, he saw that there used to be slave-master, then there was Nobles and serfs, then there's owners and workers. And so he believed, you know, there's this kind of evening out going on. And so he wasn't creating a moral statement. He wasn't creating really a philosophy. He was attempting to read history through the dialectic. And he said, if that continues, there'll be an evening out in the end. And so the evening out is what we know as the Marxist utopia, where everyone does, uh, uh, you know, contributes to society and no one really needs anything because there's so much abundance. And so Marx believed that this would all come about. Um, But the way he read history was that he made it so that way class conflict was necessary. It's just part of history. It's just going to happen. Class conflict is necessary. And so Marx saw this thesis and this through history, just as Hegel did, and he brought it into the economic realm. Um, Again, from John Frame, he says, any increase in the prosperity of the owner is at the expense of the slave and vice versa. It is a zero-sum relationship. So conflict is an unavoidable consequence. There is no possibility of reconciling two parties so that they can live together in peace. They can only jostle for position until a full-scale class war breaks out. In time, it is inevitable that, that the conflict will dissolve and the whole social order that is dependent on slavery to bring a new economic arrangement into play. And so here again we see this concept of structures. The structure of society gets broken down and then you get to the next step of the dialectic. And so this is how history progresses. And you might I've heard people using that term, we're going to progress history. You might be on the wrong side of history. I'm on the right side of history. It's because in their mind, they're doing what Marx said, and we're going to the next stage. We're going to the synthesis. You're still in the old thesis. And so history progresses like this. Um, and what's interesting is, again, Marx was an atheist. He didn't believe there was absolute good or absolute bad. He didn't believe in morals. But he called this an injustice. And so I, I don't know how you can have something that is unjust when there's no standard of right and wrong. But Karl Marx said that this this class warfare led to injustice, that there was oppressors versus oppressed. There was the have-nots and the haves. And so the people that have stuff will always lose in history, and the people that do not have will always win in history over time until you get to his utopia. Um, So again, Karl Marx was attempting to read history. Um, And so again, from John Frame, it says, But Marx did not understand his analysis as an ethical one, It is not based on the unfairness of slavery, but on Marx's claim to have discovered scientific laws governing history. To him, indeed, there is no objective right or wrong. There's only what is right for the advancement of one's class. So the ethics of one's class will be opposite to the ethics of the rival class. And so you can still see this ideology today. The ethics of one class are just combating against the ethics of another. There's no right or wrong. There's no standards of good or evil, but there's just difference of opinion and that difference of opinion leads to class warfare. And so Marx said that this war is inevitable, it's going to come, the class struggles are going to continue forever, and he pitted oppressor versus oppressed and the mistake Marx made to the modern marxist is that he left it just to the economy. Um so there was a problem with this that the the war never came. The the revolution never took place. And so Marx Marx actually blamed Christians for this. And so To Karl Marx, religion was the opiate of the masses. And the reason was that because it dulled their senses. They're oppressed, but they don't know it. Because these Christians are telling them to be content. These Christians are telling them to be happy. And these Christians are enjoying life, even though they're deeply (laughs) oppressed. And so Marx hated religion, and he actually uh, wanted to get rid of it. And what's interesting is his greatest opponent was Charles Spurgeon. Which, if you aren't familiar with Charles Spurgeon, he was a well-known pastor in London at the time. And so Marx absolutely hated Spurgeon and wanted to get rid of him, wanted to get rid of Christianity because it was got in the way of the progress of history. What's interesting is he, he actually recognized that uh, change did happen through religion. He recognized that Christians did do good things and brought progress, but it was too slow. And so the opiate was that, wasn't that was that there was no change, it was that there was slow change. And so Marx thought, we need the revolution now, just get rid of the Christians, get rid of the ideology, and then we can have the revolution now. And so Marx and The people that followed him, because of this, blamed all of the problems of history on the structures of society. Again, from John Frame, it says, the real problems he and later Marxists argued are structural. They cannot be solved until there is a radical change in the very nature of society. The means of production must be taken from the rich capitalists and given to the representatives of the poor. And so again, Marx held it just to the economy, but the revolution never took place. And so the people that followed after him, after his death, came together and started discussing why did it not take place. We know religion's a problem, so we want to get rid of that. But for some reason, people are happy. And we don't know why they're so happy. For some people, the reason are content, and we don't know why they're content. Don't they know how oppressed they are? And so this group got together in Frankfurt, Germany, and it became known as the Frankfurt School. And so this was a group of philosophers um, that, again, were Marxists, and they were coming together trying to figure out how is it that we get people to realize how oppressed they are. Because once people realize they're oppressed, then they'll want to overthrow the society. But until they realize they're oppressed, they won't overthrow it. And so, this is from James Lindsay. He says, the institute, now commonly referred to as the Frankfurt School, was formed with the vision of filling in those conceptual gaps through the work of its members. Most notably, these scholars argued, in effect, not only was the social democratic leadership too wishy-washy and compromising, its voting constituencies among the working class were themselves clueless about their real needs and their real but masked state of oppression. By this time, the leading lights of the Institute had agreed that what the Marxists really needed was an aristocracy, a role they could fill. The major result of this work is what we now know as critical theory. And so essentially they got together and said, people are too stupid to realize how oppressed they are. They're too happy and the politicians aren't, they're too wishy-washy. Even the Marxists in in the government are too soft on this. So they aren't pushing for the revolution. The people that are voting for them aren't pushing for the revolution. And so all these philosophers got together and said, they need us. We need to come up with a way to show them how oppressed they are. We need to show them how how horrible their lives really are. And so this group came up with what is known as critical theory. And so you might have heard critical theory in other terms, so you've heard critical race theory, maybe you've heard critical gender theory. There's a bunch of different critical theories. Um, So critical theory, is basically meant to destroy whatever lands between the C and the T. That is the whole purpose of it. It is to point out how oppressed you are. And so you look at race to see how people are oppressed in race, you look at gender to see how people are oppressed in gender, and that's the whole concept of it. So from James Lindsay says, everything in our world is power. Systems and structures are created to maintain and build upon that power. Governments, organizations, businesses, and even hobby clubs exist solely to maintain and build power. Critical theory's goal is to intellectually emancipate society from oppression. Critical theory is a practical in a distinctively moral rather than instrumental sense. In other words, critical arguments are formed and founded in rhetoric only. You cannot test their claims with any instrument of measurement. This is critical theory in a nutshell. So if you can't test its claims, how can anyone know whether its claims are true or not? This requires faith or suspension of disbelief, whichever you prefer. What value does it really have to anyone? So far, it's been very effective, a very effective method of creating additional faculty jobs at universities. It has the added benefit of creating for its proponents social protections that are granted to allies of the oppressed. And so critical theory is narrative. It doesn't have to be based in truth. It just has to get you to think a certain way. All critical theory wants you to do is to view yourself as oppressed. And so it doesn't have to correspond with reality. It doesn't have to correspond with history. It just has to get you to think in a different way than you're thinking now because the purpose of it is to tear down those structures. They don't want you to think about things the same way you used to think about it. And so an example of this, um, if you guys have heard of the 1619 Project, this is a project that um, was published by the New York Times, and the purpose of it was to get people to think of the United States as being started in 1619 when the first slave arrived in America, rather than in 1776. And so it was heavily criticized. A bunch of historians came out and said, this is not historic at all. It's making a bunch of stuff up. A lot of it was just, literally just narrative, just people giving their opinions on stuff. And so um, when criticized, the the, uh, author of this said, well it's not meant to be history, it's meant to be narrative. And that is what critical theory does, It, it creates narratives. So when people view it, they just want you to change your frame of mind. Because if they can convince enough people that the United States was founded in 1619 on slavery, that means every structure built on top of it after 1619 is a racist structure. And again, the whole point of this is to tear down the structures so you convince people the structures are bad and you will want them to tear it down. So you don't have to point out reality. You don't have to point out actual racist laws. You just convince enough people that things are racist just because they are. With rhetoric, there's no there's no proving them right or wrong. You just convince them that it's true. So that's the goal of critical race theory. It's just pointing people to believe in narratives rather than in what is true or false. So that goes through uh, Marx, and so that kind of brings us out of the modern period. Um, and so if you guys aren't familiar with the what modern philosophy is, modern philosophy is essentially um, an abandonment of God, and it says we have absolute truth and we have absolute morality, but we don't need God to, to discover them. And so we can use science and reason, and we'll go and we'll discover what is true, and we'll discover what is moral, and we'll leave God out of it. And so then postmodernism comes and says this is absolutely ridiculous. If there is no God, then there is no absolute morality, and there is no absolute truth. And so postmodernism abandons the idea that there is absolutes at all. And so everything becomes relative to the person. And so um, this abandons the ability. So Hegel again thought that you could perceive all reality. Um, Marx thought that reality shaped the way your mind worked. And now in postmodernism, no one can perceive anything besides what, what their own senses perceives. And so no one actually knows what is true. We only have our truth. You only have your truth, I have mine. There's your narrative, there's my narrative. And so we can end up clashing because our narratives collide, but I can't say your narrative's wrong and you can't say mine's wrong. That's postmodernism. And so in the postmodernist movement, we then get into language philosophies. And so the purpose of language philosophies is to, again, look at the structures of language. How does language hold up the structures of society? And so one of the ideas in this is structuralism, which says that language and symbolism are a huge way that societies build themselves up. And so you define all the words to hold up your your uh, culture and so we, for example, we define justice the way we define justice just to hold up the culture. And so come, uh, then comes in Jacques Derrida. He is a 20th century philosopher and so he came up with deconstruction philosophy. And so deconstructionism focuses on uh, largely on literature when he started out and the idea is that when we read books from people who are dead, well we can't ask them what it really means so we get to deconstruct and come up with our own meaning in the text. So if if the person's gone you can't ask them questions, you can make any book say anything you want it to say because you get to redefine the words. You get to tell people what it is that they meant because you're deconstructing the language. And so this is from James Lindsay. He says, deconstruction in its purest form was a practice of reading in order to pick apart the binary oppositions by which we understand our world. Fact and fiction, science and art, male and female. To be radically skeptical of categories on principle and to doubt that words could ever refer straightforwardly to things in the real world or convey stable meaning. It relied on the assumptions of structuralism, which says that cultures are reliant upon structures of meaning largely maintained through language, and less well through symbolism, and of social constructivism, which holds that societies construct reality with the way they understand it and talk about it. To practice deconstruction is to pick at these categories and words, an attempt to show them to be inherently flawed, problematic, or absurd, and so the deconstructionist wants to look at language and they want to pick it apart. Is there really just male and female? Well, that's just a that's just a um, social uh, social construct. And so you just defined male and uh, gender as male and female because you're trying to hold up the structure of society that is the patriarchy. So you're just trying to oppress us with your definition of gender, and so we're going to label that as a social construct tear it down and redefine it because we, are going to, uh, because we want to be released from your oppression. The whole point of deconstructionism is to release people from their oppression of the definition of words. You might have also heard this used when people deconstruct their faith. And so they're doing the exact same thing. They're taking the definitions in the Bible and taking what the Bible says and they're deconstructing the language. And so you might have heard people say, well, you know, I knew God was love, but then I started really looking at what does love actually mean? And then they look to the world for the definition of love and say, well, that was contradictory to what the Bible's teaching. So obviously the Bible isn't actually loving. And so they're deconstructing their faith by t- tearing apart the language and saying that, d- that the structures of the Bible, the structures of the people who wrote it, the structures of the people who teach it are oppressive. And so we can't understand the words, the way they're defining the Bible. We can't understand the words, the way it's been taught in the church because that's repressive. And so we need to undo those things and you deconstruct your faith and then people end up leaving their faith because you can't be a Christian and deny the Bible. So, uh, Derrida had deconstruction. We then also have uh, Michel Foucault. He is another 20th century philosopher, and he came up with the concept that knowledge is power. And so, uh, he essentially believed, kind of like Derrida, that language is meant to control people. And so, he went a little further with this, and it wasn't just about deconstruction, but it was that there is actual power in language. And so, again, this is the idea that you are Defining things in order to not just uh, control society, but there's actually political power in the language. And so, from James Lindsay he says, the term Foucauldian refers to ideas that were produced or by or that derive from the thinking of the French postmodern philosopher Michel Foucault. Foucault's thinking, particularly his thoughts about the nature of knowledge, power, discourses, and the relationships between these, has been incredibly influential on the development of the theory of critical social justice. Indeed, many of Foucault's ideas lie at the very core of the woke worldview of critical social justice. The starting place for the Foucauldian view of knowledge, power, and discourses is that knowledge is socially constructed and has been defined in the service of power. So knowledge and power are the same thing. And what we consider knowledge may have little or nothing to do with reality outside of its political applications. And so he said, we can't actually know anything. Again, this is the postmodern thought, right? We can't know any part of reality. And so when someone goes through and they try to say this is true, what they're doing is they're using political power. They're trying to gain power over you by saying words can actually have definitions. And so the person that controls the dictionary, the person that controls the definition of words, they're the ones that are in power. And so if we want to undo the oppression, we have to undo knowledge. You can't actually know anything. You can't be right about anything. You can't look at anything as solid or absolute. And so you just have to, like Derrida, you have to deconstruct language because the language is oppressive. The language cannot be known. And so language itself just gets kind of torn apart and has no meaning to it. You and I can't really communicate because we can be using the same words, but your definitions are your definitions and my definitions are my definitions. And it doesn't matter if they they don't match up because you can't tell me how to define my words and I can't tell you how to define your words. And so we're essentially speaking past each other. And you'll see this a lot with... um, Uh, with things like, uh, I'll bring up an example from last week, we had uh, Black Lives Matter. And so there's not one definition for what Black Lives Matter actually means, and that's intentional. You get to decide what it means on your own. So does Black Lives Matter represent the movement? Does Black Lives Matter represent police brutality? Does Black Lives Matter just represent that black people actually matter? Which one do you choose? Well, you can just pick whichever one you want, and you have to say it because you can find at least one definition you can agree with. And so that's the idea that knowledge is power. You get to define the words however you want to define them. And so all of these things come together. And so we get the different critical theories that are coming out. So we have critical gender theory, critical race theory, critical queer theory. And so all of these kind of get into the society, and they're meant to do that. Reveal oppression, deconstruct language, redefine terms, all for the sake of bringing out the idea that you are oppressed or that you're an oppressor. And again, you can see that this is a very destructive ideology. That is the whole point of it. It's not meant to build up. It is only meant to destroy. And so um, the most prominent one you guys might have heard of is critical race theory. And we went more in depth on this one last week, so I'm not going to go over it again. But I'll just add this. Critical race theory was uh, founded by a Harvard law professor named Derek Bell. Um, And he essentially created critical race theory um, to study law. And the idea was we're going to look at the civil rights movement and if the civil rights laws helped black people or hurt black people. And so what critical race theory has answer to that question is no, it did not help black people, which is why in the state of California, they wanted to undo those laws. Um, So in our last election, there was actually a ballot vote for us to remove civil rights protection under the law for people. And that is part of the critical race theory idea. We need to undo that because now discrimination is a good thing. We want to discriminate against people because, again, if there's disparities, then we need to discriminate to remove the disparities. And so that's what critical race theory, it's trying to push people into thinking that you are oppressed everywhere. So then becomes one problem for these uh, critical theories is that now you have a bunch of different uh, theories with no commonality between them. So you might be oppressed as a black person, you might might be oppressed as a woman, you might be oppressed as a transgender, you might be oppressed for any different number of ways. But you're all going to be working in discontinuity with one another. And so Derek Bell had a student named Kimberly Crenshaw, and so she came up with intersectionality. And this is from James Lindsay. He says, our experiences of the social world are shaped by our ethnicity, race, social class, gender identity, sexual orientation, and numerous other facets of social stratification. Some social locations afford privilege, for example, being white, while others are oppressive, for example, being poor. These various aspects of social inequality do not operate independently of each other. They interact to create interrelated systems of oppression and domination. The concept of inter- intersectionality refers to how these various aspects of social location intersect to mutually con- constitute individuals' lived experiences. And so it's actually essentially what intersectionality is doing is saying you can be oppressed in more than one way, and now because you, so many different people are oppressed in different ways, now you can all kind of come together. Because now you have intersections of your oppression. And so under this ideology, again, everyone is just meant to see their oppression. And the only way you don't have some form of oppression is if you're a Christian straight white male. Um, You're basically the only one left out of this. um, But don't worry, you aren't left out entirely. You can become an ally. And so if you are not oppressed, you can become an ally by acknowledging your privilege and essentially bowing down to the ideology. You're going to step out of the way and you're going to lift up other voices. That way other voices are heard and yours is no longer heard because you're the oppressor. And so we don't need to hear from oppressors. So this is, again, meant to get everyone into the ideology. You're either oppressed, so you need to feel bad for being oppressed and throw off your oppressors, or you're an oppressor, and so you need to feel bad for oppressing and help the other people throw off their oppressors. And so, again, why all of this? Well, it's for the purpose of the revolution. This is why it's called social Marxism. Marx went, didn't go far enough. He just talked about economics. And so now his thought leaders after him wanted to broaden the spectrum more people needed to realize they were oppressed, so that way the revolution could take place. The end goal of this is the Marxist revolution. It all goes back to the economy. There is one other philosophy I want to touch on before we uh, continue, Um, and I want to touch on this one because while it doesn't necessarily directly relate to woke ideology, it's kind of running in parallel to woke ideology, and so this is existentialism. Um, So there are many existentialists, but the most uh, well-known one is uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, And so he is another 20th century philosopher. And so Sartre uh, recognized uh, or, you know, taught that God was dead. God no longer exists. And so for him, this means that there is no designer and there's no determination. Uh, There's nothing that controls who you are or what you do. Now, you can immediately see a contradiction between Marx's idea and his idea. Marx thought we were determined by natural material uh, processes. And Sartre comes along and says there's no determination. You're completely free of will. You can do whatever it is you please. And so this is uh, from John Frame. He says, "Rather rather, says Sartre, we simply appear on the scene without definition, without purpose. So we have no essence that we need to live up to. We only have existence. Existence is simply our daily sequence of choices and decisions. At the end of life, it will be possible for people to evaluate those decisions and thereby to describe what kind of person we have been. We may call this essence. So essence comes at the end of life, not at the beginning. Existence precedes essence. And so you can see how this is completely anti-gospel. The Bible says that God created all things. This says that we, we have no creator and that we have no essence until you die. And so for Sartre, what he told people is that you're completely free of will and you can do whatever it is that comes to your mind. And it doesn't matter what people say, just do what you want to do. And he called this living your authentic life. And so if you want to live your authentic life, um, essentially what you're doing is you're basically living in a way that you want people to look back at you and define you the way you want them to define you. And so if you want to be known as the person that wears pajamas every day, just go out and wear pajamas every day. So that way when you die, it'll be in your obituary. You wore pajamas every day. You essentially want to define yourself through your actions. Um, And so Sartre tried to explain why uh, why it is that so many people live inauthentically. Because he essentially believed that most people in society lived inauthentically. We're confined by our society to not live authentically. And so what he defined was the, the gaze of shame. So essentially, if I want to wear pajamas every day and I go outside and people are looking at me because I'm wearing pajamas, well, that gaze of shame shames me into not living authentically. And so Sartre, for people to live authentically, said that society had to get rid of shame. Don't be ashamed of anything you do. Just do what you want to do. It doesn't matter what other people say. It doesn't matter what happens. You just go and live Your most authentic life. Now, what's interesting is Sartre actually uh, liked communism, or not communism, he liked Marxism, but he never uh, openly endorsed it because of the clear contradictions between Marxism and existentialism. Uh, Because Marxism, again, even though it claims to be immoral, has a moral claim in it. And it says you're determined to work along the dialectic. And so Sartre liked it, but he recognized that there was huge contradictions in the ideology. Uh, But again, as you look at people, you can see. People living in this existential way. And again, it kind of ties somewhat into the woke ideology because you can see people excuse me essentially making that the fact that they are not living their authentic lives a form of oppression. So that existential ideas just become another form of oppression because you're not able to live authentically. And so what we as Christians need to do then is we need to turn to the scriptures. We need to understand why it is that these ideologies are not something that Christians should ever adopt. Um, And again, it's really clear that these things do not go in line with what God teaches us about us or what God teaches us about himself. And so what we need to recognize is that what these philosophies are saying is either we can know everything about people and that there is no right or wrong or that it doesn't matter at all. So they're saying people are essentially good or it doesn't matter. The Bible does not tell us this. The Bible says that there are standards and that we as human beings are sinful by nature that we tend towards sin, and this is because we are all fallen in Adam. Romans chapter 5, verse 12 through 14 says this, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam who is a type of him who was to come. And so what scripture teaches us is that Adam was our federal head. When Adam fell, we all fell. And so we now have a sin nature. And so it's not that there is no morality. There is a morality. God defines that morality. And it's not that we're basically good people. We're not good people. We're sinful people. We are bent towards sin. And what's crazy is that we can't even recognize it. You see, if we actually want to know about ourselves and we want to know about reality and we want to know about God, We actually have to look to what God says because God is the creator of all things. He created us as well. And so he knows himself. He knows his creation. And so God can tell us things that we don't know about ourselves. And so what we don't know about ourselves is just how evil and wicked we really are. You go and ask anyone in the world, are you a good person? And they'll say, yes, I'm a good person. So you ask them, you don't have a wicked heart? No, I don't have a wicked heart. Everyone's going to answer this way. But in Jeremiah 17, verse 9 through 10, it says this. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Essentially, not only is your heart sick and wicked, it's also deceitful. So it's going to deceive you into thinking that you're not sick and wicked. It's going to deceive you into thinking you're a good person. And so Jeremiah continues, he says, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his way, according to the results of his deeds. And so who can understand the heart? God can. This is why when we want to know if we are sinful people, God is the one who reveals our sin. This is why he gave to us the law. Right? We, we sinned before the law came in, but what the law did is it revealed to us that we were sinful. We didn't realize how sinful we were until we read through the law, and then the transgression increased because we saw that we did not meet up to God's standard of morality. And so we need God to reveal our own sinfulness to us because we cannot see it naturally. Our sin is going to suppress that truth, Our sin is going to make us go into that sin and think we're doing good things. We're going to call evil good and good evil. And so God reveals to us our sin nature so that way we can see it. The problem is because we are all born in this wickedness, because we are all born with this wicked heart, we all reject God. Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 23. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that we are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to become wise, they became fools." They exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. The Bible tells us that we know God exists. What's interesting is atheists actually acknowledge this. Um, if you talk to atheists that have done their research, they'll say that it, the research shows that children just inherently know a God exists. But the atheist wants to train them out of this. And so they say that thinking that a God exists is childish thinking. Really, it's what God says, that we all inherently know God exists, and we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And so what happens when we suppress the truth of God, just like we see with these philosophies, they suppress the truth of God, and they think themselves to be wise. Why? Because there is no God above them. They are the sum of knowledge. And so they come up with foolish ideologies. This is the problem with sin. We don't recognize our sin. We suppress the truth of God, and we go off into foolish thinking. That is what the history of philosophy is. The history of philosophy is men rejecting God and becoming wise in their own eyes. We need God to know who God is, and we need God to know who we are. He reveals to us how sinful we are, and he reveals to us our need for him. And so man naturally rejects God. We are left without an excuse, and we end up falling short of the glory of God. Romans chapter 3, verse 9 through 12 says, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. It is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. And so again, if we ask people the question, are you good? The Bible says there is none who is good, not even One, None good but God, God. exactly. And so we need to recognize this. This is what scripture is trying to show us. This is what the Bible is doing. This is what the law is doing. It's revealing to us that we are way more wicked, way more sinful than we even realize because we deceive ourselves and we suppress righteousness. And so we need God to reveal to us our sin and then God is the one who is going to then save us from our sin. We're so sinful that we cannot do it on our own. Romans 5, 1 through 2 says this. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace which we stand, and we exult in hope for the glory of God. And so our only hope to reveal our sin, our only hope to get out of our sin, to put on righteousness, is if we put on the righteousness of Christ. He is the one who justifies us. He is the one that saves us from our sins. And he is the one that takes out our heart of stone and gives to us a heart of flesh. The Bible says that he writes his law on our hearts so we can know what God has said. He also gives to us the Holy Spirit that sanctifies us and causes us to walk in obedience according to God's laws. Only then can we do things that are pleasing to God. Without it, we are simply just stuck in our sins. And so if we don't recognize that we are sinful, if we don't acknowledge Christ, and we continue on in our sin, we are not going to be able to understand the world around us we're not going to be able to answer the big questions questions of philosophy because all of our answers are going to be based in sin. The second you leave God out of your answer, your answer is based in sin. And so that's what these philosophies do. They leave God out, and it is all sinful speculation. It is sinful ideologies. And really what they're all doing is they're creating envy amongst people. They're creating division amongst people. That is their point. And so the Christian should reject this. We Can only know what we know because God has revealed it to us. So, if we want to correctly diagnose the problems of the world around us, it has to start with us acknowledging our own sin. What this ideology wants to do is it wants to point the finger at everyone else. You're the oppressed person, everyone else is the oppressor. The world needs to change for you. And the Bible says the exact opposite you need to change. You are the problem, you are the sinner, you are the one who is not righteous. You are the one who needs Jesus Christ. And so the sinful ideology tells the exact opposite. Live your authentic self. Do whatever pleases you. And so it is clear that this teaching from the woke world is not according to scripture. Sadly, these ideologies have begun coming into the church. I mean, there are are a few ways that this ideology has come into the church. One way is through more liberal churches. And, And when I say liberal, don't think liberal and conservative as in our politics. Think Uh, liberal and orthodox. And so orthodox is you're holding more to scripture, liberal is you're kind of abandoning scripture. And so through the liberal churches, um, which at times I don't even know why we would call them churches anymore, essentially what they've done is they've uh, rejected scripture as authoritative, and so they end up interpreting it according to their liking. And so what we've seen throughout history, this is nothing new, liberal churches look like the society around them. And so it's no wonder that liberal churches are going to adopt critical race theory and social Marxism and all these woke ideologies. It's because they're basically just a society as well. They just kind of put Christian language over it and misquote Bible scriptures to support their ideologies. And so it's no shock to us that this happens. And so for you and I as Christians, what we need to recognize is that scripture is authoritative, that we can trust what it says. In 2 Peter chapter 1, starting at verse 19, it says this. So we have the prophetic word made more sure to us, or sorry, so we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in the dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. This is the teaching of scripture. That, that men did not do their own will in prophesying, that it was the act of God. God moved through them to write the scriptures. And so now when this is written, obviously the Old Testament is the re- passage he's referring to, he's referring to the scriptures of the Old Testament, that those are authoritative. But this continues on into the new. This is why we only accept books in the Bible that were by those who were with Jesus. It's from the apostles and it's from Paul who had a personal experience with Jesus. And we don't accept anything besides that. We don't accept into the scriptures the people who learned from them and, and anywhere down through history. It is only those original writings from the apostles. And this is because God was speaking through them, and this is how we can know that it is true. And so Christians need to hold to sola scriptura or scripture alone. When we don't hold to this, the inevitable end, even if you start more orthodox, is you'll veer into liberalism. Because what people do is uh, they'll end up pitting the Bible against itself. And so what you'll often hear is that, well, you know, I like Jesus, but Jesus and Paul don't, dis, don't agree on things. And the way they get to this is they read Jesus saying, love God and love neighbor, and they go, yeah, I like that. Love God and love neighbor, that sounds really nice. And they go out and they define love the way the world defines love, and they read Paul speaking against homosexuality and immorality and all these other things, and they go, well, my definition of love doesn't fall under that, so Paul must be a false teacher. And so they pit scripture against itself, and they only adopt the parts they like, and they reject the rest of it. And so that's what happens when you don't hold to scripture. So we as Christians, to avoid this, need to hold to scripture. But there is another way this teaching is entering into the church. And this is in, uh, more Orthodox churches. And this is through the, uh, racial issues. And so I think one of the reasons this is, is because, uh, again, for a long time in our society, Christians have been kind of been the curmudgeons, right? We don't, we aren't progressing with the rest of society. We're holding to the scriptures and we're seeing as old and outdated and we're on the wrong side of history. And then finally, they come up with an idea that we can agree with. Racism's bad. And so Christians kind of jumped on this and said, yes, racism's bad. And then they kind of adopted wholesale the philosophy behind what they were saying, not realizing that the terms were being redefined. And so um, more Orthodox Christians have bought into this. And so one uh, person I want to mention is um, a man by the name of Eric Mason, and he wrote the book Woke Church. And so what Eric Mason is attempting to do is he's attempting to address racial issues And so he bases the idea of the woke church on Ephesians chapter 5, verse 14, which says, For this reason it says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. And so essentially what Eric Mason is saying is that Christians should be the most woke people when it comes to racial issues. We should be on the forefront of the battle, we should be the ones leading the charge, and so we need to be woke. The problem is that he admits that he adopts the idea from the world. And so what he did was he took... The worldly philosophies of critical race theory and such slapped Bible verses over them and called them Christian. And so my interpretation of why he did this is that just like Marx, he thought the traditional way was going too slow. Because what he talks about is he, he says that there is that the regeneration in the Holy Spirit is meant to transform us and make a kingdom impact. And particularly he says this kingdom impact is meant to be in the area of social and racial justice. And so I would agree with him that we are transformed. There is a transformation of us. There is kingdom impact. But again, he is complaining that it's going too slow. We need new methods. We need new ideologies because currently Christians are too slow in this field. And so he's adopted in worldly thinking to address these issues rather than just going with what scripture says. And so we cannot do this. We cannot take things from the world and just put scriptures over it and call it good. Uh, the, the, the ideologies that he's bringing in are clearly unbiblical. But again, I think it's people's zeal for racial issues because it's finally a topic that the world and us can agree on, that racism's bad, that many Christians just end up adopting the ideology. So we need to be more careful about this. This is why we're doing these talks, so we can kind of see these things and identify them when we see them coming in. We don't want to be led astray by these ideas. We do want to address racial issues, but we want to address them biblically. And again, I covered that topic a lot more last week if you want to Go back and listen through to that. And so for us as Christians, we need to understand all of these definitions biblically. We can't be led astray by this. We need to understand justice and equity and all of these things. We need to go to the scriptures and understand them from there. And so first we're going to look at justice. What does it mean to be just in the scripture? If you guys are turning me to Proverbs chapter 24, starting at verse 19. Proverbs 24, starting at verse 19. It says, Do not fret because of evildoers, or be envious of the wicked, for there will be no future for the evil man. The lamp of the wicked will be put out. My son, fear the Lord and the king. Do not associate with those who are given to change, for their calamity will rise suddenly, and who knows the ruin that comes from both of them? These also are sayings of the wise. To show partiality in judgment is not good. He who says to the wicked, you are righteous. People will curse him. Nations will abhor him. But to those who rebuke the wicked, we will be delight. And a good blessing will come upon them. And so basically, uh, the Bible defines justice this way. That there is no partiality. And this is where equity comes from. Equity is equity under the law. You get your just due under the law. And so if Christians want to be just... There is equity under the law. There is fairness under the law, and we show no partiality. We cannot lean towards one person or another. Bell says, do not defer to the poor or to the wealthy. We cannot do this in judgment, and this is how we become just. So everyone gets their due penalty under the law. Well, the issue is that these ideologies want to show partiality. Why? Because their idea of injustice is disparity in all things. And so you can look at a workplace like, like, let's say, the tech industry, and you can see that there's mostly men in the tech industry, and there's not very many women. So they can't point to you where the injustice is. They just know there's injustice because it's not 50% across the board. And so that means we need to look at the structures, and there's, there's some sort of sexism going on somewhere. We can't define it, but there's injustice because of the inequity. That is not biblical. And so what they then do is they show partiality in hiring. So if you're a woman, you're far more likely to get hired in the tech industry because we need more women in tech. And so it doesn't matter what your qualifications are. You just don't get the jobs if you're a guy because there's too many of you in there already. And again, we're seeing the same thing in schooling. You have, um, you have um, affirmative action. and It's doing the same thing. We're having different standards for different people. We're showing partiality. And so scripture tells us very clearly over and over and over again, we cannot show partiality. Leviticus 19, verse 15 and 16, says this. You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor defer to the great. You are to judge your neighbor fairly. You shall not go about as a slanderer among your people, and you are not to act against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. And so once again, we see this repeated, no partiality in judgment. You cannot give people different Justices, they have to have the same judgment, and so one of the things that or one of the complaints that God had against Israel was this very thing that the rich would give a bribe to the judge that way the judge would rule in their favor, and that was unjust that was unjust, and so that's what it's referring to when you're getting favor from the justice system where you should not be getting it. It needs to be impartial um Another thing again, at pointing to affirmative action is the unjust weights and measures. Leviticus 19, verse 35 through 37 says this You shall do no wrong in judgment, in measurement of weight or capacity. You shall have just balances, just weights, a just ephah, and a just hin. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shall thus observe all my statutes and all my ordinances and do them. I am the Lord. And so we cannot show this type of partiality. We cannot have unjust weights and measures. And again, that's what affirmative action is doing. You're Asian, well, you need to get much higher scores. You're whites, now you get the next lowest score. You're Mexican, the next lowest. Black, you get the lowest score. And so we're doing unjust weights and measures for applications. This is not okay, according to the Bible. So if we want to do justice, we need to show no partiality and have equity under the law. Again, not equity in all things, but equity under the law. we can then look at fairness, because what people are going to say, well, this isn't fair. Again, we have those disparities. We have, you know... Again, we can look at tech. More men than women in there. So isn't this unfair? And so what does the Bible say about fairness? Uh, If you turn to Psalm chapter 9, verse 7 through 8. Scripture, again, defines fairness the same way. Not as equal outcome, but as equal treatment. And so Psalm 9, 7 through 8 says this. But the Lord abides forever. He has established his throne for judgment. And he will judge the world in righteousness he will execute judgment on the people with equity, and that is fair. It's fair that we are treated equitably. There's equal treatment before the outcome. So you're not looking at the outcome to determine fairness. You're looking at how you're treated before the outcome. And so R.C. Sproul gives an analogy for this. He says I, he basically says if I give an exam and someone comes in, they do a ton of studying, and they do really well on the test, then I give them the A. That is fair. And if someone else comes in and they don't study at all, they didn't care about it, they just walk in and they write something down, and I give them a D or an F, and that is fair, that is just, that is equitable. And that is what fairness is. It's not that they get the same grade, it's that I grade them fairly. And so what is unjust, although it leads to equality, is if he just goes through and says, I'll give all of them A's. Well, there, there was equality there, right? But it wasn't just, it wasn't equitable. It was unjust, it was actually unfair because now you have one person putting all the work into it, And getting the exact same thing out of the person who put no work into it. And so fairness is how you deal with them going in, not how they look going out. We want to be fair and just to people in this way. And so again, people will still complain, well, there's still disparities. And what's wrong with this is because people have privilege. And so now we need to look at privilege. What does the Bible say about privilege? Is privilege actually a bad thing? Um, Scripture clearly tells us that privilege is not a bad thing that God gifts us all in different ways. We can see the parable of the talents. He gave one five, one two, and one one. And what happened at the end when the person with one talent did nothing with it? He gave it to the one that had five. And so clearly God doesn't think giving us different things is unfair or unjust. And so there there are privileges. And so when someone accuses you of being privileged, say, thank you. It's a gift from God. Thank you. So what they're doing with this, why they say privilege is wrong is because what they are doing is they are coveting. It's not that privilege is wrong. What they are doing is they're trying to justify their covetousness. And so again, Exodus 20, verse 17 says this. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. And this is what the woke ideology teaches you to do. Covet what that person has. So might it be that some people have it easier in life? Well, yeah. It's just going to be the case of things. Some people are going to have it easier than other people. But what we're told is do not covet. You know, we can all look at Bill Gates and complain, but we're not meant to. We can't covet what Bill Gates has just because he's so much richer than us. And so um, what, what these ideologies want you to do is they want you to tell people to give up their money, give up their power, give up their culture. Um, they want you to give up everything. Why? Because they're coveting what you have. And so we should not be covetous people. Lost my place in my notes, sorry, one second. Um, Oh, here I am. So one thing we need to recognize also about privilege is that God does give us things differently. There's different gifts from God, but again, God does teach us not to be a withholding of what we have. God does teach generosity as well. And so if you are someone that has a lot, the idea is to lift other people up, right? If you are blessed with wealth, then you give to those who are in need. And so you're lifting them out of poverty. So This is a biblical concept, but it is not reversed. You cannot actually demand that people give you something because that is coveting. And so God does teach us to be gracious and giving, but he does not teach us to covet. And so that's what they're doing when they point to privilege and say that it's bad. They want you to feel guilty for having more. And so we cannot fall for this. We cannot um, say that just because we have something that someone else doesn't, that we are doing something wrong. Uh, Doug Wilson had a funny comment about this. He says, people basically equate having money to a cancer, right? You know, you're an evil person for having money, now give me some of it. And so what they're essentially doing is saying, it's a bad thing, but I want it. Um, And what's funny also about this is when people talk about, uh, in terms of riches and wealth, is they want the rich to be taxed, but they always have that cutoff right above their head. And so I might have this much money, but you have a little bit more, so that's where the cutoff is. You need to pay more in taxes than I do, um, but I'm too poor to pay more taxes. So it's not going to apply to me, it's only going to apply to you. And so, again, there's injustice, and what this is, it's really envy. And that's the root of all social justice. All of social justice is envy, and it's defining things in a way and coming up with new ter- terminologies to justify envy. And so if someone tells you to be for social justice, what they're telling you to is uh, support envy, support covetousness, support people being mad at the world, support people being angry, build up their anger. That is what this is. It is envy through and through. But we need to realize that God is addressing our sins. God does not want us to be envious. God does not want us to have anger. He wants to remove those things from us. He wants to remove our sins. Romans chapter 5, verse 6 through 9 says this. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us, and that while we were yet sinners Christ died for us much more than having now been justified by his blood we shall be saved from the wrath of god through him and so what scripture teaches is that we were all like that we were all in envy we were all in anger we were all in wrath and then god died for us or christ died for us while we were still sinners while we were still rejecting him while we were still rebelling against him while we still had that sinful heart that was suppressing the truth and unrighteousness christ died for us. And so his purpose of this is to remove us from our sinful ways of thinking. We're not to think like the world. We're not to think in the ways we once thought. God wants to remove that from us. And so if you guys would go to Colossians chapter three, verse five through eleven. We went over this passage last week, but again, it still holds true today as well. Colossians five, or sorry, Colossians three, verse five through eleven. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience, and in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and I've put on the new self who is being renewed to, the, to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free man, but Christ is all and in all. What scripture teaches that God is doing through us is he's t- casting aside our sins. He's pulling us out of them. And so he's telling us, don't be angry or have malice or slander or abusive speech. These are things God's pulling us away from. And the woke ideologies are pulling people into that. They want you to be angry. They want you to have malice. They want you to slander other people. And they want you to have abusive speech. That is what the woke ideology does. Because you have to tell people that they're racist. You have to tell people they're oppressors. Or you have to tell them that you're oppressed and you can't amount to anything. It's manipulative and abusive speech. And it's building anger. And God is pulling us out of this thing. So the woke ideologies are anti-Christ and they're anti-gospel. They're pulling us in the exact opposite way that God wants to take us. And so God has us, we're putting off all these things. and He's ending the divisions. There's no longer Jew or Greek, circumcised or uncircumcised. He's ending the divides that once divided us. He doesn't want us to have these earthly divisions. He wants to all be one in Christ. And so, again, what this ideology is doing is the exact opposite. You're oppressed by everyone. That's what it teaches. You are divide- divided from everyone. You are part of your group, and that is it. That's what the woke ideology wants you to see. It is the exact opposite of what Scripture is teaching. And so, for Christians, we need to be one in Christ. We need to hold to Scripture, and we need to preach the gospel to the nations. Because if we want people to come out of this, what we need to realize is that we need to preach the gospel. It is the gospel that saves, it is the word of God that saves. And it's not just preaching that Christ saves people because people need to realize their need for a savior. We need to let them know that their understanding doesn't define who they are. They don't know who they are. God knows who they are. God knows their sin nature. And that's why he gave to us the law. So we need to preach people the law and the gospel. They need to know their need for a savior because if you just tell them, you know, if you believe in God, you'll go to heaven. They'll say, well, I don't care about heaven. I don't believe in God. So you need to show them their sin. You need to show them their wicked ways. So when you do show them the gospel, when you show them Christ and how he is pulling us out of this, and they compare it to the ideologies they've been taught this whole time, they will see the clear contradictions. God is bringing light to this world, and that is what we are doing too. We're preaching the light of the gospel. So people who believe these ideologies and are pulled into sin because of them will be pulled out of it by the gospel. But again, we need to make sure that we are ready for this. We need to make sure we know the arguments. We need to make sure we know the positions so we can combat what they are going to say. And so for you and I, we need to think like Christians as well. We are transformed by the renewing of our minds. And so we don't want to be taken captive by these ideologies. Colossians 2, verse 8 says this. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception. According to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. And this is what's happened to guys like Eric Mason. They've been taken captive by this ideology. This is what's happened to guys like uh, I mentioned last week with, um, now the names are blanking from my mind, yeah, David Platt and Matt Chandler and these other guys, they've adopted the philosophies of the world. We need to understand these things. We need to study them and we need to compare them to Scripture so we don't get pulled into these philosophies as well. And then we will be better equipped when we go to evangelize to these people, when we go to preach the gospel to them. We'll know what it is they think. We'll know how to combat their thoughts and show to them the scriptures. And so for the Christian, it starts with God's kingdom. We need to be in God's kingdom. We have to have a kingdom mindset. And what this means is that we're going to rely on Christ. We are satisfied in him. Because again, what happens, and I think Eric Mason's a good example, is when you're not satisfied in Christ... You're going to start adopting sinful ideologies. When you're not satisfied with Christ, you're you're going to look at the world and it's going to cause you, your sin nature is going to cause you to have envy, wrath, anger, and sinful desire, and it's going to overtake your thinking. So, again, this is is why we've done this series. We want us as Christians to be ready, we want us as Christians to be equipped, prepared for what this world has to offer. Because, again, they're, they're coming in with Christian language. And so, if we aren't going to be taken captive by these philosophies, we need to know what Scripture says about it. We need to know how Scripture defines things. We need to go constantly back to Christ to know how He is saving us from ourselves so we don't fall to these ideologies. And I want to end with this Uh, I want to end with why I think this has become such an issue in our world. For generations, Christians have internalized the gospel. For generations, Christians have said that this is a personal faith only. It really only matters what I believe in my head. It only matters what I do on Sunday morning. And we've kind of abandoned the society. We've said politics is not for the Christian. The public forum is not for the Christian. It's only for me and what I believe personally. I'm saved, and that's good enough. And sure, we'll go out and evangelize at times, but we don't have any real kingdom understanding of the gospel. And so we've abandoned all these realms, and then we're shocked when the secular world comes in and takes them over. And so we have to ask ourselves, why is it that prayer is out of schools? Why is it the Bible is out of schools? Why is it that in the government it is all secular people? Well, it's because Christians for generations have said, that's not my realm, and so I'm going to stay out of it. And so, of course, the secular world is going to come in and take over. We have abandoned our posts as Christians. The gospel is for all of life, not just part of it. The Bible teaches us that we are to go out in the world and teach obedience to the nations. That we're to teach obedience to Christ. And so we as Christians need to do this. We need to realize that when we're in our workplace, we're Christians. When we're in public, we're Christians. Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords in all places, not just in our hearts. He is not just the King of your heart. He is the King of creation. And so when he sends us out, it is to transform the world. And again, this transformation is slowly, the the analogy, or the or um, way the Bible describes the kingdom is like a mustard seed. It starts small and it slowly grows. And so we see the world around us and I don't want us to be dismayed by it. I don't want us to see all the woke ideology kind of taking over all the institutions and think, well, here's the end. What we need to do is we need to be faithful to the scriptures. We need to be faithful to Christ and just continue on doing the work. And so we might see persecution, we might see things going crazy for a while, but if we actually hold to the gospel and apply it to all of our life, scripture clearly teaches that the the kingdom overcomes. Out of of heaven and earth, the heavens and earths will be shaken, and the only thing that remains is what is stable, and that is the kingdom. And so this woke ideology will come and go, just like all other ideologies. It is contradictory, it is sinful, it is not sustainable. It will eventually fall. And so the call to all Christians should be stand to your post. Know what you believe. Teach it to those you can. And evangelize to those who can. And just keep doing this through the generations. And Christ wins in the end. Amen? Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word We thank you that you have saved us from ourselves, God. That you have revealed to us our sin nature. And God, we thank you for the Holy Spirit that testifies to the truth of your word. It is all of you, God, our salvation, our sanctification, all of it is of you. And so you have given us the ability, God, to understand the world around us. To identify when there are things that do not align with your word. And God, you say that we do not fight against physical things. We fight against... Um, principalities, powers of the air and that is what this ideology is it is a power of the air it is a deceitful and wicked ideology and so we don't over, overcome it with physical weapons we overcome it with the sword of the gospel we overcome it with your word by teaching it to the congregation by teaching it to our children and teaching it to our children's children so hey God your kingdom expands And your people continue on. And the world will look on in awe as we are joyful and we are happy. And we live in this life in a way that they cannot understand. There's peace that goes beyond understanding God. Because we know your promises are true. And so we hold to them. God, I pray that your people would would rise up in the society. And have a boldness for the gospel. Because people need it. They have fallen to this teaching and even Christians have fallen to it. And so we pray that there's boldness in your people to preach the nations. In your holy name, amen. Amen. Can we thank Brian for that?
0: Oh, hey there. You still here? Looking for the Q&A? That's in part two. Part two got uploaded at the same time as part one. So if you go to our episode list and look for Wokeism Q&A of our Sensored series, you should find our Q&A there. If you have a question that doesn't get answered in the Q&A, we recommend that you go to our website, find our email, and send us a message. Our pastors will get back to you as soon as they possibly can with an answer to your question. With that, have a good rest of your day, and have a blessed rest of your week.